I'm glad to be with you this morning. Um, before we jump into it, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. And so if you'd pray with me. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us to wander without speaking, but you have revealed yourself to us, that you have um, you have spoken through the prophets, that you've spoken through the apostles. Uh, we pray that you would help us today as we uh, try to understand what we believe about you, about your word, and, and how that uh, changes our lives as we uh, are here on this earth and try to follow you and be disciples and, and be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. God, we thank you and we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so I have this fancy toy. We'll see if it works. Um, but here at, here at Trinity, this is our uh, mission. We exist to glorify God by making and mobilizing name of this, uh, you know, the Sunday school class, mobilizing faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. So part of mobilizing disciples is that we want to learn and to know the word of God. And part of that is we want to know what we believe when we say the word of God. What do we mean when we say scripture? Um, and so this is kind of where we're at. We're, we're doing a study in theology. Um, this is particularly the second week of scripture, the doctrine of uh, the word. And so uh, this is an important part of our discipleship. This is a part of the mission of being a disciple is that we got to know who this God is that we worship, right? What is his word and what does it mean that this is the authoritative word of God? So this is week two. Like I said, this is actually adapted from a series that Capitol Hill Baptist did. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. I just want to throw that out there. If you want all of the like outlines and stuff, we've tweaked it, obviously, but there's um, there's stuff on their website. Um, you can go look at that. Last week, Justin gave us some introduction to what theology is, um, sort of the authority of Scripture as the foundation for how we begin to discuss God, how we begin to think about God. We need the Scriptures as our foundation. So today, um, we are going to be talking about the doctrine of the Word, but we're going to focus on the topics of canon, uh, which is a lot to talk about in a very little amount of time. Um, but the canon is the measuring book. So, so what is the standard for the books that we have? What is, what is classified as scripture? Um, and then we're also going to talk about what makes scripture different, what makes scripture particularly unique, um, what are the attributes of scripture. Um, and so we'll get into that. That's a brief roadmap. Again, if you just came in and you didn't grab an outline, you can grab one or you can not grab one. It's up to you. Um, there's some that are filled out and some that aren't. But uh, so... I'll try to stop every once in a while for questions. I'm sorry for talking really fast. That's part of the outline is you can read instead of if I talk too fast. But anyways, um, so we're going to get into canon. So canon with uh, one in, not two. So not the thing that goes boom, um, but canon like this. And the, the best way, uh, this word is, is, is a Greek version of a word uh, from an ancient Semitic language uh, that means measuring read kind of like rule, standard. Um, and so canon, this is, maybe this is a fill in the blank on the thing. Uh, canon is used to refer to the collection of writings. When we're talking about scripture, it's referred to the collection of writings that are the authoritative standard of God's written revelation. So what books comprise those of our faith? What, what is authoritative and what is not? This is, these are questions of canon. Um, so we all kind of have this idea of canon, right? We all have this understanding, especially maybe if we talk about like a TV show or particularly I'm thinking like Star Wars, right? This is the easiest way I can explain it, is that 
in Star Wars, you know the things that are authoritative because George Lucas said they're authoritative, right? Because he wrote it. And these are canon, right? But then there's other things in the Star Wars universe that maybe are helpful, uh, like fan fiction. It's fun to read or whatever. But you know that that's not authoritative. You know that's not canon. George Lucas is canon. This is not canon. So that's the best way I can think of to uh, describe how canon is functioning. So obviously when we talk about canon of scripture, we're, we're concerned with what is authoritative uh, for our faith. What is authoritative? What belongs in the Bible? What should these books be? So this is the question of canon. And it's more important than Star Wars. I just want to make that clear. This is, we're talking about the books that are authoritative. They are the word of God to his people. So um, how many of you have seen maybe like a like a, a, a History Channel show about the Bible or the Discovery Channel show, like any of these things. If you've seen any of these things, what typically happens is they depict the process of how we got our Bible by just showing like a bunch of Gandalf-looking guys in some ornate robes in a room just kind of throwing down, this is the book I think it should be, this is what I think it should be. And that's always funny to me because that's just not how it happened. That's not how we got the Bible. Uh, in our time today, uh, we don't really have time to talk about the transmission of, of how it continually came about, but we want to talk about what are the books of the Bible and how are they different and what are the criteria. Um, and so this is kind of where we're going to focus in. But I do want to uh, say this up front uh, just to keep this in mind because I think that it's really important. And the reason I mention that is because the canon, the books of Scripture, were not, they're not in our Bible today because some man or some group of men has decided that this is what it is, okay? So the books in the Bible do not get their authority. They do not gain their authority from uh, from a man or a council or church. This is the typical Roman Catholic view is that they get their authority from the church because the church said these are the books, but that's not how we want to view the canon. The books that are authoritative canon are recognized as authoritative not because humans recognize it, but because of who the author is. Because they are written by God, because they are God's word, they are recognized and received by the church, not created by the church, if that makes sense. So here's the next fill in the blank if you're writing it out. The books in the Bible are not decided upon by the church, but they were recognized by the church. So that's just something that uh, I want us to have up front to keep in mind. This is really important. Um, because that means the authority isn't in a council. It's not in a man who's decided these are the books we're going to have, but it's actually because this is the word of God. So keep that in mind as we go. We'll kind of come back to that. We need, to, we need the canon because we need scripture. We need God's word. We need God to speak to us. And that is authoritative because it is God, not because it is some man somewhere else. So we'll, we'll talk about this later. But Let's start with the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, this might be really, there's three major parts of the Old Testament. Um, we'll see how, yeah, this is awkwardly formatted. That's okay. Um, so the Old Testament consists of three major parts. Those are the law. Um, the law, you can think Deuteronomy, Leviticus. Um, those are books in the Old Testament that comprise the law. Um, the second blank in division is the prophets. We can divide the prophets into the major prophets, um, which would be like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then we also have the minor prophets, and these are Jonah, Obadiah, kind of the smaller books, 
the way I think of it is that the bigger books are the major ones and the smaller books are the minor ones. Um, and then the last division here, that was kind of a subdivision. This last division is the writings. Um, this is basically everything else. Um, this is typically referred to, sometimes it's referred to as the Psalms. Because um, Psalms is a really big book, so it's a good catch-all for everything. But also, it's, you know, the things we haven't mentioned would be Psalms, Job, um, Proverbs. Those are typically fall within the writings. So uh, these are the books uh, that we have in the Old Testament. And they were kind of written throughout a long period of time. Right? There's a long period of time that these books were written. Um, but what's interesting is that they're all pretty much universally recognized by the Jews as the word of God. Like there's really no major disputes. There's really no major arguments that we have um, from the Jews of the day who, who were like, well, I don't know about this or this. It, th there was pretty much consensus. Like the Old Testament books that we have today were established basically by the time of the New Testament when Jesus gets on the scene, the Old Testament is set. Um, Jesus himself refers to the entirety of the Old Testament by uh, citing these three major uh, divisions that we just talked about in Luke 24, 44. So these are the words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms, which is shorthand for the writings, um, must be fulfilled. So all of the Old Testament, that's Jesus saying the entire Old Testament is about me. So, um, but he's using these three divisions, these traditional, tra these traditional divisions that say the entire Old Testament. Um, now, something, something else is that the, you may have heard of uh, a group of books called the Apocrypha. Now, these, these were um, books that the Jews had that were uh, not scripture. So they recognize that this is not scripture. They recognize that this is not authoritative, um, but maybe they're helpful. There's some historical stuff in there that's kind of helpful, but they do not treat them as scripture. And there's not, again, there's not any big giant debate about whether or not uh, these should be treated like Genesis. They understood that this wasn't uh, the case. And these eventually, if you're wondering, made their way into the Christian Greek Bible in the fourth century. And so still you'll find some Bibles, I think particularly in the Catholic Church, where the Apocrypha is still included. Um, but the understanding here from the Jews and from the early Christians is that the Apocrypha is like fan fiction, right? It's, it's even though it's historical so, at some points. But it's, it's not authoritative like Genesis, okay? Um, so I want to throw that out there because I know that that's, maybe you're having conversations uh, with people um, about the Apocrypha. Um, but they did not treat them as canon. They did not treat them as authoritative. Okay, so that's a whirlwind. That's a flyby. Let's uh, get into the New Testament. Um, does anybody have any real quick questions on the Old Testament? I'll stop here for a second. Yeah. Are the writings often referred to like books of wisdom? Yeah, I think books of wisdom is maybe a more specific okay. uh, for, you know, the, the Psalms of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, those things. But... I think that's kind of a subdivision if we were to put it in. So, yeah. Any other questions? Let's move to the New Testament. New Testament's a little different. Um, yeah, okay. Um, so we recognize both the Old Testament and the New Testament as the Word of God. Um, Jesus recognizes the Old Testament as the Word of God, so we do too. Um, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says this, that long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So long ago, Old Testament, 
God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So Hebrews kind of helps us understand here that, that in the time of the Old Testament, the prophets were the mouthpieces of God. Okay, the prophets were the ones who God would act, God would tell the prophets, and the prophets would speak on behalf of God, right? This is how it worked out in the Old Testament, and it's not particularly any different in the New Testament, but the action of Jesus Christ's incarnation, this is an action that God does, right? And so the, the explanation of the action of Jesus' incarnation is the New Testament. Okay? So what we have is the same kind of pattern that we see in the Old Testament, God acting, God explaining what he did. This is what's happening in the New Testament, but it's all centered around Jesus. Okay? So it all comes back to Jesus. I mean, this is a Sunday school class, so that's a safe answer <laughs> at any point. Um, so this is the same pattern in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God acts, and then God interprets his actions through the written word. It is on there. Cool. Um, so let's talk about a little bit more specifically um, how this works out uh, in the New Testament. So what, what books do we consider the New Testament? How do we get what is the authoritative word of God in the New Testament? How do we know what's established? Well, some people think that this took a long time. Some people think that the, that the New Testament was a long period of time where they were kind of debating and talking about these books over and over. And, and, and really it took until Carthage, uh, this council in Carthage in 397, uh, where they made a final official uh, decision about the books. Now remember what I said earlier, that the canon, the scriptures authoritative by God were not because some council decided that these are the books, right? So what's important here is that there maybe is an official list in 397 of what books uh, are in the New Testament. But they were recognized in the first century. They were recognized far, far beyond, three, far, far before 397. So um, that's why that's important, because the authority isn't because the Council of Carthage in 397 said these are the books that are in the New Testament. It's because these are given by God to his people, right? Um, so uh, in the early church, you can read, you can see that they, they recognize a fourfold gospel. So they had uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They knew there were four Gospels. All 27 books of the New Testament were really widely circulated among the churches of the early church um, from the beginning. The early Christian texts, they, they, they knew these were authoritative. They knew they were important. So they sent them to the other churches because they couldn't just, you know, copy and paste, right? That was a process that is hard to do in the first century. But so what do they do? They send them. Why? Because they know they're authoritative. They know that this is the word of God. Um, so you may commonly hear um, that there's other books, and, and we can talk about some of these books. Sometimes it's kind of fun. Um, but all of these other books, like maybe you've heard Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Peter, these kind of other Gospels. Um, a lot of these, like if you're watching those Discovery Channel shows or science shows, um, I love them. So it's no shame in watching them, but I just understand that this is a little skewed. Um, all of those books were actually written after the first century and typically stylized after the Gospels to make it sound like, you know, maybe this could have been in the first century. And then also sometimes they were attributed to, you know, the Gospel, like the Gospel of Thomas is attributed to an apostle, which we'll talk about um, when we get to attributes. 
Um, so those books, we can't date them as competently as we can in the New Testament. So all the books in the New Testament were recognized by the church early. They were received by the church early. They were passed around by the early church. Um, and the other things, just they didn't even, they didn't even talk about the things that is clearly not scripture. Those weren't passed from church to church. The books in the New Testament that we have today, those were passed from church to church because they were recognized as canon. Um, and to be fair, there was a few arguments, particularly about Hebrews, James, Revelation, uh, Jude. This was pretty much just because they didn't sound like Paul, and Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. So that's a lot of the dispute there. But even in their dispute, they recognize that these books are something different than the Gospel of Thomas, something different than these other books that you know, are clearly not Scripture. So even the fact that they're debating them tells you that there is something significant about them. And so, again, uh, we need to keep in mind as, as well that um, this whole process is underneath the umbrella of God's sovereign decree, right? So, like, we have to remember that uh, the books that are in the Bible ultimately are God's word, right? So that means he's the one that's in charge of putting them there. So there is a divine kind of interaction here as well. Um, but a part of it, too, is that the early Christians, they really cared about truth. They really cared about what their text meant, what they said. Um, they really uh, wanted to get it right. Um, so this is important. The other thing that is important is that, this is, that the Bible is self-authenticating. What does self-authenticating mean? Does anybody have any guesses? Self-authenticating. Yeah. Uh, it speaks for itself within the text. Like oftentimes there are references to other books yes. or other, Bingo. Uh, other events. Bingo. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so the Bible attests to its own truthfulness. The Bible attests to itself. So the books that are in the canon are books that recognize each other's authority. Um, and, and we can think of uh, uh, 1 Timothy 5.18. Um, this is Paul. He says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Well, what is he doing? He's quoting from Luke. He's quoting from the gospel of Luke. And he's calling it scripture, right? Okay, well, that could, you know, let's, let's, let's not jump the gun here. What does Paul mean by scripture? 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So when he's referring to Luke, a New Testament, a New Testament text, he's saying this is scripture. And then it, a little bit later, Paul is saying in 2 Timothy, uh, all scripture is God's word. It is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching. So we have this kind of this self-attestation, this self, hey, the Bible is true. And we're pointing to the Bible, using the Bible, to show that scripture is, that, that what is scripture, right? Um, I don't know if this one's on here. Yeah, so ultimately, this is kind of what we talked about earlier with God's uh, providence, but Jesus in John 10, 4, he says this about himself. He says, when he was brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. So ultimately what he he's referring to is that he is the great shepherd and the sheep know his voice. And so, we have to emphasize here that the sovereignty of God and the ordination of his word, um, that the sheep hear his voice. And um, this, is, this is all kind of the umbrella underneath what we're going to talk about next. So we understand God's role that is here. 
But we also want to talk about what are the criteria. If we had to put some labels on this, okay, what, what would we place on particularly the New Testament canon uh, that would basically qualify it, right, if we want to say qualify it? What are the common criteria that all of these books share, really, as recognized by um, the church as the authoritative word of God? So that's, that's where we're going to head next. Um, so the four criteria, you'll either have them or there's blanks uh, below, and we'll go through them one by one. So the first one is apostolicity. We kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but everything in the New Testament specifically draws back to Christ. So the books are, must be written by an apostle, somebody who was a firsthand disciple of Christ or a disciple of an apostle. That's basically as far as the line goes. Um, somebody who had firsthand contact with Christ or firsthand contact um, with, with an apostle, who was a disciple of an apostle. Because those who were apostles, they knew Jesus. They're eyewitnesses. They can attest. Uh, and also Jesus commissioned them to do this. Um, so is it written by an apostle? Criteria number one, is the book of the Bible uh, in the New Testament, is it written by an apostle? Second one, I don't know why it didn't change to a two, but there you go. They're all going to be ones. Um, the second uh, criteria is antiquity. This means, is it old? <laughs> like, did it come from the first century? Remember I was talking about those other books? They didn't come from the first century. So they, didn't, they don't have the antiquity. Uh, it doesn't, if it doesn't come from the appropriate time, it probably can't be written by an apostle or a disciple of an apostle. Like those kind of go hand in hand. So we got to think about the, the, the time when it was written. And again, we can get into transmission. We can get into a lot of these things. Um, and if you want resources, let me know. But I can't, I can't get into them today. So the books uh, must be written by apostle. They must be, uh, be able to go back to the time period. And the third, or number one times three, is orthodoxy. Does this book teach something that goes against something else that we know of scripture? For instance, does it go against the Old Testament? That's an interesting one. But does it go against another portion of scripture that we know is scripture? Is it orthodox? Um, here's a quick example from one of those other books I was mentioning, the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, you think, okay, yeah, Thomas, he's an apostle, great. So if he's an apostle, he's probably around in the first century at least. Um, and then you read the book. You read the Gospel of Thomas, and you start to notice something weird is happening. And the Gospel of Thomas, he actually thinks, uh, he, he says this. He says that basically only males will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, which is like in itself, there's that statement. But then he goes on to say that Mary will now become a male so that she can enter the kingdom of God uh, because it's only males. And so now Mary's going to basically have a sex change operation and so that she can become, uh, uh, inherit the kingdom of God. This is the Gospel of Thomas. Does that sound like the rest of Scripture? <laughs> Not really. Does that sound like Galatians? No. Uh, so you think, okay, well, maybe Thomas didn't write this, Right? And so, and in fact, you can look at the research. He didn't. It was a forgery. They put Thomas's name on it to say, to try and give it credibility, but Thomas did not write this. This is not a Christian, a Christian document. So this is what I mean by, is it orthodox? Does it, does, it, does it step in line with the other scriptures? Because if it doesn't, maybe something else is going on here. Um, fourthly, universality. This doesn't mean... Um, well, this just means, was it widespread? When it circulated around the churches, was it widely circulated amongst all of the early churches? 
Um, did it get passed around? Because remember, the things that they're passing around are the things that they really care about. The things that they're passing around are the things that they uh, recognize as authoritative. So was it widespread? Did it get passed around a lot? And so um, those are basically the four important criteria for canon. Again, we need to place this all under the umbrella of the sovereignty of God. Um, but all these books in the New Testament specifically are going to have each of these characteristics. Um, so that's basically it. I might, yeah, I'm going to skip over that. So um, that's basically all we're going to do for canon today. I know it's a ton, but any, like, last, any questions on canon or uh, anything that we just covered before we go into the attributes of Scripture? Any questions? Yeah. So I'm just wondering for the Gospel of Thomas, is that something that's widely read, or is it some kind of obscure book? Um, not really. It's not spread. It's not, uh, and when we mean widely read, we typically mean widespread in the sense of given to, say, the church in Ephesus, given to the church in Galatia. Um, Gospel of Thomas was never passed from church to church. Um, in fact, I, I'm not even sure if it was, if it was widely read in a general sense, um, but that's a good question. So, yeah. But it's still being published. Today? Yeah. Yeah. This is the, uh, this is the, this is the uh, science channel, history channel, sort of seedy sort of, you know, there are, there are, let's say this, there are, if, if there are three or four manuscripts for the Gospel of Thomas, there are thousands for the New Testament. So there, there's a significantly more quantity and quality of, uh, of authentication for the books of the New Testament, as opposed to those books. Um, even for books of like, you know, you think books of like ancient Greek, like, I don't know, like Beowulf or something like that. Is that Greek? That sounds Greek. Mesopotamian. Sure, okay. What's the one? The Odyssey? Odyssey, that one. There's like a few manuscripts of that. We still read that. But there's a few. So you start to understand that there's, there's a little bit more, by a little bit, I mean, exponentially more uh, care for these New Testament books than for, say, the Gospel of Thomas. And that tells you a lot. It tells you a lot about uh, how the early church really thought about <coughs> that book. If they thought the Gospel of Thomas was canon, they probably would have copied a lot more of them throughout the course of 2,000 years, but they didn't. So there's, there's kind of a, you got to weigh them, you know, which one is, which one is a little heavier. And so all of the books in the New Testament infinitely outnumber things like the Gospel of Thomas for his representation and early documents that we have. So is, does that help a little bit? Yeah. 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 Do you have a, yeah. No, I, well, I have a, a relative who tells me that scripture has been tainted. Mm. So he does that reasonably. Whenever I bring something up from scripture he disagrees with, well, scripture has been tainted. Okay. So I think... I, th I think we were going to get into that a little bit with attributes of Scripture, because what we believe about Scripture is going to help answer that question a little bit. But the other part of that question maybe is transmission of how, how the things were copied, how the manuscripts were copied down and all this stuff. Um, let me just say offhand, um, I wish we could talk more about transmission. But um, a lot of these, when, when people point to the discrepancies or inconsistencies between texts and Scripture and stuff like this, a lot of what the what they're citing, because they'll talk about in the original, you know, 
manuscripts or in the original Greek or whatever, a lot of what they're citing are very insignificant uh, changes, like maybe a, a comma or something is out of place. And so I'd wonder if it's something like that. But so what about this Thomas book, the Gospel of Thomas? Is this one of the things that they're, they're using as proof that it's I mean, some people, maybe. Yeah, like, I, I don't know if I would, I don't know if the typical argument uses the Gospel of Thomas, but it's just, it's typically inserted by, you know, the modern kind of like, I guess the contemporary historians, stuff like that, that aren't really seeking to do things appropriate to scripture, but they're like, oh, look at this, and then they don't consider all the other uh, factors. So I don't know if it's typically the lay, like just kind of normal argument. That's more of like the, the historical scholar kind of argument. But maybe you can ask them about it. <laughs> Be like, yeah, then let's talk about it. Uh, you had a question, and then we'll we'll go back here. Oh, I, I just speaking of yeah. you're talking about copies and manuscripts and things like that. Yeah. Isn't I, I've always heard that um, that the scripture, the scriptural texts, are probably the most solid historical documents. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of, of manuscripts that we have, and a lot of them, and some of them were burnt up. We know of like solid ones that were burnt up, but like so, there's even more than that. So there's even more that we're recovering today. Right. But I mean, we so we essentially base our history on much less than what we right. have yeah. on like the manuscripts of, of yes. scripture. Yeah. I think I think if you if you want to talk historically, um, it sounds silly if you're arguing for something else where this has a ton, a ton, like the New Testament has a ton, a ton of, of texts that we, we can still see today. So, yeah, so that's that's a good point. Um, that's a good point. Do you have a question? Yeah. I, I was just going to comment on um, people saying that this is tainted yeah. discrepancies. Sure. It's a little suspicious. That's that's a very good point, and honestly, that's a that's a good segue. We're going to talk about the attributes of Scripture, and uh, and kind of the process of a little bit of that. Uh, again, this is all kind of transmission stuff, which we can't really talk about. Um, but again, if if you guys want resources on that, let me know. Let I'm sure Justin has some. Um, we we can we can provide you with the proper resources because it is an important question. It's becoming more and more. It's challenge, being challenged more and more today. Um, 
but let's go ahead and move into the attributes of Scripture, and then we can close up with some questions as well. So uh, the attributes of Scripture, what we're going to talk about here is basically what is unique about Scripture. So what do we, basically, what do we believe about Scripture? What do we believe Scripture is? Um, so we've talked about kind of, okay, which books from the larger scale, like which books belong here? Now let's talk about what we believe about those books that are here. When we say it's the authoritative word of God, what do we mean? Um, so that's where we're going to head. Because um, scripture, uh, scripture is the writings, right? So we have all this. Let me skip that. All right, so there are six uh, attributes um, that we're going to look at for Scripture in this section. So let's go ahead and start with number one. So we have the divine inspiration of Scripture. And these, by the way, just as a, as a note at the beginning, all of these are going to kind of build off of one another. So all of these kind of, we're going to start here with the divine inspiration, but they're all going to kind of build off of one another. So we have the divine inspiration of Scripture, and we talked about this a little bit with 2 Timothy 3.16, um, but we can also turn to 2 Peter 1.20-21, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is important because if you want to know what God says, we have God's word in Scripture. And, and we believe in divine inspiration. As Christians, we do. We believe that the Bible is God's word, that it was, that it was carried along by the Holy Spirit. Um, then we can be sure that this is God's word. We can be sure that if you want to know what God says, you want to know who God is, who you are, what he says about you, what he commands of you, these are things that are found in Scripture. Uh, that is Second Peter, yeah, Second Peter one ten through eleven or twenty through twenty one, yeah. Um, and this kind of gets back to the question about the Gospels, right? You have four different authors, right? But you do have human authors. So the divine inspiration doesn't mean that there was, you know, a robotic operation, you know, like uh, you know, like a ghost possession or something like that. What that means is that there are human authors, and they have their different personalities. And those are clear in the text. So you can see, like, the way that uh, these people uh, who wrote the text, the authors like Paul, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these guys, um, they all have their different um, giftings. They all have their different um, even reasons for writing, which may be why some of the Gospels may look a little different because there's a little bit of a different, maybe theological focus that they're trying to hit on. So they're going to say things that may be a little differently. And this does not negate the divine inspiration of God. This does not mean that because they were written by humans that God is not the author. This is the process which we want to call uh, concursus. So concursus um, is this process where uh, there's a human author, but they're carried along by the Holy Spirit in the process of Scripture. And so, ultimately, you have the ultimate author is God, okay? But, but there are areas where we can talk about the human author's maybe intent um, as well. Um, but the, the main point here is that we believe that Scripture is divinely inspired. The process in which that happens, we're going we're gonna to call it concursus because there are humans that wrote these down. Um, but it is still divinely inspired, so this means that the Bible is true because it's from God. Unlike other books that were written by men, and maybe they even are uh, referencing Jesus or something like that, we can't be sure that those are authoritative because they're not canon, so they're not divinely inspired. Um, so the books of Scripture, the books of canon, 
um, are carried along by the Holy Spirit through the process of concursus. So every part of the Bible, not just parts that you like, uh, are the word of God. Every part of the Bible speaks um, for God. Every part of the Bible is God's word, even when it makes us uncomfortable. We have to reckon with it, and I think our initial instinct might be to say, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't think that's really divinely inspired. And, and we need to uh, recognize that the Bible, in its entirety, is divinely inspired, is the divinely inspired word of God. It's not a human writing, um, but it is inspired. So ultimately, the divine inspiration supersedes that of the human intent, because God is greater than the human authors, um, if that's controversial. Um, okay, so let's move on to number two. Uh, this is the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, inerrancy of Scripture. Now, this word maybe you've heard before, um, but it... We're just going to sit, we're going to put it out here that scripture in its original manuscripts does not error. Notice the language says in its original manuscripts. Um, this is another conversation for transmission. Um, but this is the typically when we talk about inerrancy, we want, to, we want to be clear to say that scripture, the very first when it was written, is, in, is not in error. Um, Transmission kind of muddies that in some instances where people can point to say something like, these two words are, they're flipped. They're out of order. That's an error. And you want to say like, okay, is it though? Like you still understand what this sentence is saying, right? So like, but that's a transmission. It's not the original manuscript. So I think that's, that's why we want to make it clear that there's the original manuscript. And this is, again, a conversation we just can't get into. Um, but it's still true. Like, that doesn't mean that the book that we have today, the Bible, the scriptures today, that doesn't mean that they're untrue, okay? Um, like we were talking about earlier, there is so much evidence that we could be, like, pretty sure, like 99% sure that this is, uh, this is as close to the original manuscripts as we can get. Um, so that doesn't mean that today there is error, but... I do want to point out that we're talking original manuscripts here. Um, and this is because, like we said, divine inspiration. So it's because God has divinely inspired it that there is no error. Because God cannot err, right? Um, well, that's not in here. Okay, well, Proverbs 30, uh, 5, we read, Every word of God proves true. So the word of God, as Second Timothy tells us, because remember, Scripture is talking to each other. There's this back and forth. Every word of God proves true, and if Scripture is the breath of God, it's the word of God, it's spoken by God, then we can know that all of Scripture um, is true. Hebrews 6, 18 tells us that it is impossible for God to lie. So we can be sure that because it is divinely inspired, because God is the author, there is no error. See how these follow? God is the author, God cannot err, therefore Scripture does not err. And that leads us next to um, the infallibility. Actually, hmm. What are we doing on time? Oh, we got to go through. Yeah, okay, we'll skip that. Um, infallibility, infallibility of Scripture is pretty similar to inerrancy, but with one uh, distinction. So we're going to say this. this. This means that the Bible is not false, okay? This is not false. So this is about the implications of inerrancy. So because God is the author, it, is, uh, it, it does not err, and because it does not err, it can be trusted. It is not false. It is true. In other words, 
Um, it's the whole Bible being true. It's the result of God's word being true. So these, these kind of build off of one another. Um, and this is kind of where we need to be careful because some people will want to say, that, okay, yeah, it's true. I can believe spiritually there's some good here, but maybe there's some, there's some error, right? So what have you just done? Well, you've denied the inerrancy of the scripture, but yet you've affirmed the infallibility. So this is why we distinguish between the two, because you can, you can have the implications of scripture and you can affirm that, but a lot of people don't want to reckon with the, the, that the Bible is not in error. So these, these are why, this is why we distinguish these two things. And this is a really, uh, this is a really common uh, line of approach um, towards the scripture. Um, I want to say not in the church. I want to say outside of the church, but sometimes in the church as well. Um, and we must avoid this temptation. We need to affirm that God's word is true. We need to affirm that it is without error. Uh, and because it is without error, we, we affirm the implications of that um, is that it is not false, that it is true. So, yeah, so that's, that's, that's point number three. I don't know why it's not numbered. Um, let's go four is the clarity of Scripture. Also, this is a fun word, perspicuity. Sounds like perspiration, but it's not. Um, perspicuity of Scripture, clarity of Scripture, and this means, you guessed it, that the Scripture is clear. It is perspicuous. Um, so, unlike maybe my delivery this morning, uh, the Bible is clear. This means that when you read it, you understand it. You don't need an, uh, a master's degree. You don't need a PhD. You don't, you don't need anything uh, other than the Bible is clear for you to understand what Scripture means. You can read it yourself, and you can rightly understand it. I mean, Deuteronomy 6 tells parents to what? To train their children in the ways of the Lord. And the implication is, it tells their children, uh, Deuteronomy 6 tells parents to train their children in the scriptures. Why? Because children can understand it. So if children can understand it, we can understand it, right? Like, it's, it's clear. Um, now, the, the obvious objection to this, and, and maybe we can talk about this after or some other time, but is, okay, well, if scripture's clear, then why do we have different interpretations? Why, why do we have different denominations? Why do we believe different things about certain things? Then we're both maybe even arguing from Scripture. Sometimes it's because people aren't arguing from Scripture and they're doing something else. But even if you're arguing from Scripture, like, think about, uh, I mean, I go to Westminster, a lot of Presbyterians. We disagree on baptism. We have uh, a, a disagreement about baptism, but yet we still agree on the essentials of, uh, a lot of the essentials of um, the Christian faith. So, there, there is a, is a tension here when we talk about clarity. We, we understand that scripture is clear. Okay? Sometimes we are not. Sometimes in our understanding we are fault. Because um, we're sinners. We live in a sinful world. So we affirm scripture is clear. We affirm that it is plain. Um, but sometimes humans, the people who are reading the scriptures, can falter in their understandings. Um, that is to say that there is clearly one position. Now, there is also freedom for some of this, but there are things that there is no freedom on. Like, there, are core doc there are core doctrines for Christianity, which is what this class is going to get into. Um, there are core things that this is the Christian doctrine. This is necessary. There are things that are, are primary for Christians, 
And then there are things that are secondary, which we say there is freedom. We think that you know there is an answer, but there is freedom here because this doesn't this isn't affecting our salvation. So it's a different conversation. Um, hopefully that helps a little bit. It might just muddy the waters, but um, be encouraged to read your Bible. If you read your Bible and you're like, ah, I don't know if I can understand it, you can because Scripture is clear. Read your Bible uh, the same way that your neighbor from Nepal, from Russia, from South Africa, they can all read the Bible and understand it. So there's an implication here for missions. We want to translate the Bible. We want to get the Bible into the hands of non-Christians. It is clear. Um, five, we've got to blow through these. Necessity of Scripture. Uh, well, believe it or not, this means that the Bible is necessary. Uh, for knowing the gospel particularly, for your growth and sanctification, and for knowing God's will. Uh, this doesn't necessarily mean that the Bible is necessary f- for us to know that God exists. Romans 1 makes that clear. We all know that God exists. It is made plain to us. But in our sin, we suppress that truth. And uh, later in Romans 10, Paul also says that the only way that that truth can be recovered is unless they hear and how do they hear? Through the scripture, through the word of God. And if they do not hear, then they, how, how can they be saved? This is Romans 10. Um, if they do not hear, how can they be saved? So uh, the scripture is necessary for us to learn who God is, who we are, um, and what he requires of us. And ultimately it shows us that uh, we can be saved through Jesus, right? You can't look at a mountain and think, wow, I think Jesus died for my sins. That's the point. You can, maybe after you've read the Bible, understand that God is the God who created this mountain, and that's a little different. But if you have not heard, if you do not have the Bible, if you do not have the gospel message, um, then there is no salvation. So it is necessary uh, for salvation. And then uh, lastly, this uh, number six is the sufficiency of Scripture. So uh, this means that the scripture contains all the words God intended for his people to have, and it is sufficient. It is sufficient for salvation and to trust him and to obey him. So we don't need something else added to scripture. We don't need scripture plus anything else. Um, This is what the reformers in the 16th century would call sola scriptura. This means scripture alone. Now this doesn't mean, here's the trap, this doesn't mean exclusively scripture. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't read theology, that we shouldn't read, you know, something else, right? This isn't, this isn't to say no creed but the Bible, right? This is not what this means. What it means is that for authority, for sufficiency, for inspiration, it is scripture, and it is sufficient for salvation and to trust him because of its inspiration by God. So, we should be encouraged. I mean, even the reformers who say follow scriptura, they are clearly versed in all the other theologians that came before them. But um, we should seek to learn God's word uh, more and dig into it more. And one of the ways that we can do that, scripture is sufficient for, for that. But one of the ways that we should be doing that is also by bringing in those who are much wiser, much older, much maybe from a different time period, who have thought about these things from scripture Again, as long as they're pointing to Scripture. If they're not pointing to Scripture, then that's a different conversation. But a good theologian roots his theology in Scripture. So Scripture is the ultimate authority there. Um, And it is sufficient. So 
Uh, that means that you have all that you need to obey God. And we're going to go back here, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Again, uh, we read this um, We read this part the first time, but let's move into 17. Well, okay, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. 17, that, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. <coughs> scripture equips you for the good works. Scripture equips you to obey God, right? This, is, this means that if you're struggling, if you're confused in your walk, if you feel distant from God, if you uh, feel attacked by sin, if you are just confused in other areas, um, then you can come to Scripture uh, and knowing all of these things about what Scripture is. So if you understand what Scripture is, <clears throat> it changes the way you read the Bible. It changes the way that you read God's Word, and it should. You read your Bible and you live in the Word, and if you, you know, get cut, you should bleed Bible. I don't know if we say that here at Trinity, but like you should bleed Bible. And this means practically that when things get rough, when sin abounds, and when you're going through tough things and you're metaphorically cut, that, that the in, impulse response, the initial response should be scripture, should be God's word. Even more than an impulse, because you don't decide to bleed, right? It just happens. If you get cut, you're going to bleed. Do you bleed scripture? Do you bleed God's word? Um, it's so much of, of who we are that the Bible is just everything to us. It is sufficient. It is our life force. That's what this means. So practically, what we believe about the Bible helps us practically live and be disciples of Jesus. Um, so I'm going to have to end there. Hopefully this was of some benefit to you. Um, this is very cursory, introductory. Um, if you want more resources, let me or Justin or one of the pastors know on transmission particularly because we just can't talk about that right now. Um, but I, I hope this was encouraging to you. Um, I hope that... Um, you continue in your discipleship by reading God's word because um, it's indispensable for the Christian and for our conforming to the image of Christ. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, close us in prayer, and then we'll end. And if you have any questions, we can hang out, but we'll let you go if you got, if you got to go because uh, service starts in 10 minutes. So let's pray. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that you have not left us wandering uh, and wondering what who you are and, and, and who we are and what, uh, what you uh, command us to do and who you say we are. And God, we thank you that you have not left us to our sin, that you've sent Jesus to save us. God, you th we thank you that you have, um, you have sovereignly uh, ordained the scriptures uh, as your word, that you have preserved them, that you have given them to us yet today, 2,000 years and more later. Uh, God, we thank you for that. Um, and we praise you for that. And we pray that ultimately um, you would teach us to love your word more. That you would teach us to love you more uh, through our love for you and your word. And God, we, we pray as we continue with the Mobilize series that uh, as we dig into different theologies and different, um, different study of your scriptures, that it would embolden us in our faith. It would encourage us where we are weak. And God, it would ultimately glorify you more and more. And we pray this in your name. Amen.